Hello, everybody, and we're back uh, with Anton Yeager and, as usual, George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe and myself, Alex Hochuli. We are talking, well, we are continuing our discussion that we were having about the transfer state and looking a little bit more deeply at the end of neoliberalism and whether this also means the end of the end of history. Uh, of course, you're a regular listener, uh, so you'll know that we hold that it's the end of the end of history. But we're going to try to be a little bit methodical in running through what maybe it's what the features of, of post-history have been, the determinate political and economic and social features have been, and look at whether what's emerging now kind of challenges that. And in, in a more broad sense than just looking at uh, the, the emerging transfer state, which, of course, was the subject of, uh, of the main discussion we had over on the free show. Um, so just to start off, I think, um, let me put this question then firstly, so we, to start us off, and then I'll go through the, through the features in more detail. Does the end of neoliberalism mean the end of the end of history? Do we associate neoliberalism specifically with the end of history? Uh, Anton, I'll bring you in first. Yeah, very difficult question. Um, I don't think I fully sorted this one out. So given that you guys published a book by that name, I'm almost practically obliged to accept that we are living in the end of, the end of history. <laughs> so I will, I will submit to this idea. And I'm going to sound awfully boring with this, but I do think we're in some kind of interregnum within post-history itself. So um, what we're leaving clearly is a kind of hegemonic version of post-history, which was represented by the United States in the 1990s and 2000s, where it was clear at least that stagnation was becoming a fact across the planet, but at least the US seemed to offer this kind of civilizational model, which even all these other post-historical nations could converge towards. And there was a sort of delayed Americanization that all of them could usher in. And I, I don't think that that's the case anymore. It's just clear that even mm. if the US now has this massive stimulus package going, the US has lost its status as a civilization leader. It's clear that, for example, China has weathered something like COVID much, much better than all of those other developed industrial states. And in that sense, the hegemonic leadership about what the future of yeah, just of humanity in general looks like is now quite up for grabs. So, uh, George, why don't you go ahead if you want to respond to this? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've said this before, but the, you know, the old cliches are dying and the new ones can't yet be be formed. Um, <laughs> oh, boom. That no, I've said good. that before. Have you? Yeah, I don't that think so. Good. Oh, OK. Well, I'm saying it now. So oh, that's great. You should patent that. That's really good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm patenting that now. Patented, yeah. um, and in the, you know, and there's a whole variety of morbid descriptions, um, <laughs> consequently. Uh, on a on a fucking roll. Um, You're the new normie. But, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think what I was gonna say is that the the basic to, to be kind of crude about it. I think that the the end of the end of history, in terms of like that the 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 Brexit, the Trump eruption, if you will, like the return of the people to the to a political stage in in some way, sort of predated um, some of this more recent end of neoliberalism stuff that we're seeing. So maybe it's just worth worth just making that quite quite basic point that the in some ways the political uh event came before some of the 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 belated kind of economic changes which which you know obviously followed on from the the global financial crisis anyhow so yeah i mean i think it's you know that it quite easily gets quite confusing the end of the end of this and the end of that, yeah, you'll, but, you'll have to you'll have to read and buy the book to to really yeah exactly uh, the, the, the book solves all the problems um 
and puts things clearly. So, yeah. So, I mean, unless Phil wants to come in quickly, I'll, um, I want to just go through some of the features. I mean, I've just jotted these down and, and so this is more up for debate rather than me kind of laying down the line or something. Um, I would say that there's maybe five features of post-history or the end of history. One is globalization um, or even Americanization, but, you know, ever-increasing trade, dropping trade barriers, cultural interchange, and so on. Globalism, which I think is more of an ideology, so it's the sort of justificatory apparatus relating to globalization. Um, it's the whole liberal democracy mongering, the idea that liberal democracy is is the only game in town and and the way that that is advanced by the United States by soft and hard power. Um, the third one I would say is neoliberalism and, and specifically more in its economic understanding, or at least I guess how Quinn Slobodian has put it is the encasing of the market to prevent political intervention into it. And you can see this through specific things like central bank independence, um, maybe austerity as well, um, the reduction of the social state at least. There's a political dimension, and this is the fourth one, which would be post-politics, which is the strategy of, de- strategy of depoliticization, um, so the foreclosing of political contestation, emphasizing consensus, trying to remove ideology, the reliance on evidence and expertise. And then the, 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 the fifth one would be, for me, capitalist realism, which is the most, um, I guess, kind of psychosocial element to it, which is as Mark Fisher put it, you know, not just the the fact that there is no alternative, but the inability to imagine any alternatives. Um, so, I mean, first of all, guys, if you guys want to jump in, if there's anything that you disagree with there, if there's an element that you think that I've missed about what characterizes the end of history, Phil. Surely uh, commentary on the end of history is also a determinate feature. No, I think you're doing a pretty good job there, Alex. That was pretty impressive. Like you must be like yeah. hanging out with some really cool, smart guys to like get such good <laughs> ideas here. This is really uh, nice way to nice way to claim that. Yeah, no, it's not no, as a, in the bulk on this. A really estimable, estimable presentation. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I guess digging into those, then you know, we can maybe take a a, a really unsystem, well, maybe a systematic but not very sophisticated kind of checklist approach and go, okay, globalization. Well, that's certainly decreasing, um, or at least the move towards more globalization has ended. Globalism as an ideology, I think that definitely has taken a, a big hit. It's very much on the defensive. Um, what do you mean? Do you mean flat earthism is growing in? <laughs> yes. In well, intellectual I mean, sophistication and mass appeal. Yeah, most most definitely. It's a, a no, flat, but- earth, flat earthers are everywhere all around the globe. Uh, I think you'll find. Um but yeah, no, I think the, the promotion of liberal democracy and the, the, the sort of hegemonic status that liberal democracy has is the model as, you know, there's no discussion beyond that, I think also is has is, is changing, you know, move to either authoritarian neoliberalism, maybe in the, you know, if you look at Hungary or, you know, maybe India or whatever. Um, and, and also just the simple effect of China and the fact that China seems effective. It has been effective in dealing with COVID, it seems. Um, I, I say this in a sort of ironic voice because I, I don't want to endorse it directly. But I mean, elites in the West, policymakers and so on, look to China and go, well, you know, that maybe does have something going for it. So I think that puts an end to the globalism. The neoliberalism question, and this is something that we were discussing on the main show, um, you know, I think that is one where is the jury out? Maybe it still is neoliberalism. We're moving to a kind it of needs neoliberalism. Al- there's no, so there is, I think the issue, there's simply no alternative. I mean, so that is still true, right? 
as long as there is no alternative, then the institution, they will keep on creating these institutions um, or recreating it in new forms, as we discussed in the main episode. So, and there is no, I mean, there is no alternative. Um, you know, there has been sufficient sufficient support from the left for for UBI and for the quantitative easing and for um, the stimulus, and on top of all of that as well, there's also the um, the fact that the left remains attached to the political institutions of neoliberalism. However much they might cavil about the economic policies of neoliberalism, they've been unwilling to challenge its political structures, um, and therefore it remains intact. So. It's um, it will continue to you know like yeah, until there's an alternative it will continue. But so I, I agree with that, and I certainly agree with the pessimist sentiment that underlies it. But at the same time, just to fall back on George's cliches, it's clear that one form of Tina is dying, and we're moving into a different kind of <laughs> Tina. But it's not it's not clear what the next Tina is. Going and she's to be. a zombie Tina. Yeah, zombies. But in that sense, if you just go through the checklist, and this is really remarkable, just think about the books that were published in the 2000s and that adorned the top 10 bestseller list of the New York Times. Thomas Friedman literally wrote a book called The World is Flat. So yeah, this the is original flat the original flat earther. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The political flat eartherism was a real thing in the early 2000s. And just by gauging the intellectual climate, you can see that some of these arguments don't sound plausible at all anymore. So yeah. to talk about zombie neoliberalism now, it's not even zombie neoliberalism. It's, it's kind of, as you say, necro neoliberalism. Insofar as practically it will still be necessary because you have to solve that deficit question in a, in a, in a particular class constellation, etc. But ideologically, it's clear that the punch is gone. And it's it's just not clear they, they can take that hegemonic leading position anymore. I think the best metaphor we can use is, for, for example, what happens in post-history is that the patient goes into a coma, like the patient was fine before, the patient goes into coma. Now it's clear that the patient has woken up, but the patient still can't walk. They're still like mm. closer to their bed. And there's no sense that the patient can engage in any concrete activity. They're awake again. I mean, they're seeing things. They have self-consciousness perhaps. They have self, yeah, they have self-consciousness that that coma is over. But for the rest, it, it's like not a particularly impressive scene to see someone wake up from a coma and to be completely paralyzed because they have no clue what they need to do. I, I, like I guess that. the question is what 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 year does the coma patient think it is? Like huh. who's who's yeah. the president? What year it is? <laughs> well, is it? 1934 most likely because <laughs> yeah. of the, yeah. by the Weimar this, discussion. Wait, is it Biden who's the patient? He's the vice president, not the president. Well, I mean, oh, okay, right, yeah, yeah. I think I, actually Anton's metaphor did have some clarity, which I just kind of yeah, um, so, undermined there. I apologize. I think that the major difference, though, going through that list or the way that you presented it, Alex, which was very, it was a very good presentation, is that the idea of austerity now is like that's been dropped like so hard or like such a hot potato. However, however you drop something, very. Um, adroitly in in the centers of been. global capitalism. Again, I think that's an important to emphasize because I think in in the global south that it yeah. doesn't seem to be yet moving uh, any. So so I guess and I guess that makes you think. Like, I think that the way that Anton presented it in the, the main episode about UBI being tied to a, or being the basis of a neoliberal welfare state was a really you know I think that's a, a nice way to put it because it there are certain things which are still accepted completely. Um, and those, you know, so maybe we're getting more to the, the the core of Tina. Some of the more peripheral things, there are alternatives, but to the core, there's still like there still is an alternative. <clears throat> can, can I can I say something really stupidly self congratulatory? Because I think we we held yeah. an episode on that article I wrote for Damage last year at the start yeah. of the lockdowns, where I said like it's going to take a while for history to start again, and 
with all uh, modesty, I think some of those predictions in that piece have held up quite well, at least on, on incoming post-neoliberalism. But I think the title I also want to return to insofar as, yes, the patient has left the coma, but there's just no sense of activity whatsoever. So, I mean, to put it in a really stupid way, the end of the end of history does not imply the re-beginning of history because mainly the motor of history has been class conflict. And it's just not clear that we're seeing a really articulate and really dynamic form of class conflict return. So you have sort of class conflict without class consciousness, but class conflict as we knew it in the 20th and the 19th century is just not back on the table yet. That, 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 that actually works as a, in a, in a self-congratulatory mode, uh, a really good blurb for our book too. So, <laughs> um, yeah, let me just move through the other, the, the last, two elements. So one was sort of the political and the psychosocial. So post politics, you know, so that I think certainly is, is gone again, nothing really to replace it, that there's not necessarily a new form of statecraft, though I would, I would hazard that maybe we're going towards a sort of protective state um, where the state tries to defend its sovereignty a little bit more jealously and tries to provide benefits to the people, again, through direct cash transfers. Um, protective state, I think, is a term that Paulo Gerbaldo, a previous guest, has used. Um, and I think that's a that's probably a, a good one. Um, but it, the state's kind of trying to take account, take, take uh, or have accountability for certain outcomes in the way that post-politics was a way of diffusing any sort of political conflict or, or making any really determinate statements about what's happening other than we're managing change. Change is something that happens and we're just kind of trying to manage it. Here it's saying we might actually stop some bad changes that are happening. Um, we might we might protect you from certain things. Um, and then and then finally capitalist realism, I guess here, you know, here's where the end of history still lives on, I guess, or, or sleeps on, I guess, in, to, to, to follow the coma analogy, where um, that, that's the one bit which which is the last to go, really. Well, yeah, but the, in terms of kind of the, the psychosocial feeling, I think we were discussing before we started, like the the the, the various lockdowns or or COVID restrictions that we're all under, um, and it does create a real feeling of of inertia and, um, you know, that I mean that's that's the the pro I guess the primary feeling isn't, or at least I'm just obviously projecting and extrapolating massively from my own personal lived experience is not that there's no alternatives possible, but there's no energy. There's no dynamism to, to actually do anything really politically. It's been an extremely enervating and um, kind of nonstop inertia kind of slowing down, but speeding up of some anxiety sort of, sort of time in the last, in the last year. And, and of course the question is whether this is a kind of temporary interruption and we're waiting for things to kind of resume their pre 2020 trajectory or whether this is a new kind of um, uh, valence. It's not exactly the right word, but a new kind of way of, you know, a new kind of capitalist real sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, I I've said on, on here before, but I mean, I, I think it's worth remembering how, how we went into the pandemic or the moment just before the pandemic, where there were a number of revolts and uprisings around the world, which many of which could be described as sort of anti-neoliberal, maybe not entirely in the kind of the, the very core of the capitalist world, but in the semi-periphery and the periphery, definitely. Um, and, you know, big anti-corruption demonstrations, revolts against constitutional order and so on. So, I, I mean, I just wonder whether that doesn't come back with a vengeance. And I mean, I kind of obviously hope it does. Um, and that people have just been kind of bottled up and, and that this energy then comes out and explodes. But, but of course, we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
Um, rather than venture any predictions, I think we're going to turn to discussing neo-feudalism, um, which is a term that's kind of emerged as a hot new topic. Uh, you can buy your shares in neo-feudalism. Um, they're rising all the time. Um, you can't buy shares in feudalism. That's well, that's why it's neo-feudalism. That's that's exactly the mm. the issue that it's techno-feudalism or whatever shareholding surf economy. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, and so I, I mean I'm not sold on the idea. Um, it's been advanced by people like Joel Kotkin, who we've had on the podcast before talking about California, um, who looks, I guess, specifically at sort of the deep inequalities, stratification of society and, and the rentier economy. Um, I personally think that doesn't have enough to it to justify neo-feudalism. Um, but uh, but let me let me just maybe run through certain elements that, that, are, that make up the case for neo-feudalism, and then we can discuss whether um, whether they they hold, I mean, so really the fundamental aspect, I guess, of it would be that you have um, politically driven extraction of value, and um, this happens in various ways. I mean, financialization and, and rentierism seems to be one way, um, whereby financialization um, is supported politically through rising asset prices. Um, also the focus on the extraction of absolute instead of relative surplus value. So, you know, lengthening the working day, um, weakening worker protections and so on, rather than increasing productivity. Um, and, you know, this is something which, uh, which I, Robert Brenner, who's kind of, see, who, who, of course, the, the famous economic historian who's talked about the transition from feudalism to capitalism, um, is now talking about maybe us moving from capitalism to some sort of neo-feudalism. Um, his his argument is that the response to decline, um, looking specifically at the US, but applies more broadly, um, that the response to decline has been predation. Um, so no longer looking at kind of new production, but um, just extracting uh, value and, and wearing down the working class ever further. So, I mean, uh, I'll go to Anton first. I mean, do we think that there's any basis for this sort of new feudalism discussion, or is it just a bit of a, a bubble or a fancy term to to describe something which actually has happened in capitalism before and in different times and places? Yeah, if I'm really honest, the first time I came across it, I, I mainly saw it as one of those sort of inevitably or fatally trendy terms that just the academic bullshit machine has to churn out on a sort of cyclical basis because you have to write new research proposals, you have to new get new grant getting, et cetera, et cetera. And then you need to come up with a sort of fancy conceptual toy, as Deleuze would say, and techno-feudalism was just the next in line. But certainly reading up on the Brenner and some of the more sophisticated takes also by Cédric Durand recently, um, I do think there is some sense to this idea, mainly because it is very true that in a time of stagnation, if capital can't actually generate surpluses purely economically, it will ally itself and will attach itself parasitically closer and closer to the state. And you have this fusion between political and economic power, which just has a lot of feudal elements to it. Um, and which does remind you, as you say, of some of these feudal dynamics. I think my two big reservations about it are, firstly, even Marx, but certainly the best Marxist in the tradition, never deny that capitalism had abolished personal power or that it had replaced everything just purely by the market. So that fact that economic power was dependent on political power, which is always a fact in capitalist history. And I can see how stagnation makes it more necessary, but I don't see how that warrants a sort of terms such as neo-feudalism rather than saying it's just a particularly predatory form of capitalism. Why do you have to call it feudalist? And secondly, um, the other point is 
well, why call it feudalist when there was an essential difference between capitalism and feudalism, which Bernard himself insisted on, is that under feudalism, the peasantry was not market dependent. I mean, the peasantry had access to land, and if the peasantry just went to the Lord's castle and killed the Lords, they could basically start a peasant republic. That was possible. You could just exterminate the ruling class and everything was fine. But what's so difficult about the neo feudalism we see now is that if all those workers, whatever, kill Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> or, or if you kill Bill Gates, you'll still have the problem. They can't be killed. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a problem with that strategy. Yeah, but they're immortal robots. They'll still be market dependent and the proletariat is still going to be there. And that's an essentially capitalist problem. And in that sense, I think refutalization is trendy and it definitely explains some dynamics, but it also just confuses and I think just makes things trendy, which should be obvious almost. Mm. George, you read this article by Jody Dean where she kind of surveys the arguments. What, did you, what do you think? I, do you know what? Yes, I, I did read that article, but even more than that, I actually, uh, on my state-sanctioned uh, walks around um, Southeast London Park, was listening to... Watkins book and I think I think I, I, I mean Anton basically made the, the I think the major the major point about the like it, it doesn't we, we're not seeing a change of the of the market dependence of of the proletariat I mean that's like that's not going to happen we don't have true serfs but the way that Joel Watkins book lays it out it does just make certain things it, it, it illustrates, and particularly in California, I don't think it's accidental that a lot of what of what Joel's written is about California, because that's where a lot of these trends really come through. This, like the 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 the, the lords seem to be there. The clerisy, I think, is particularly interesting, which um, which which Joel writes which about. Sort of ideolo um, ideology creators, right? Yeah, the ideology creators and the the role, I guess, of the the PMC or the um, the managerial overclass, as Michael Lynn talks about them. There's there's definitely something there which is mm. which is emerging, which a number of different people have put their put their fingers on in 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 different ways, um, combined with a kind of extreme um, polarization. So it does it does definitely show like some. It it makes you look at the ways that I guess in which. Um, value is extracted through coercion, monopolies, and rent, which is kind mm. of kind of useful. I mean, I should say that you know initially, and I think still, I'm very skeptical of of the term, but I think there are certain contradictions or certain really ugly uh, social facts that it, that this points to that 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 is that is useful as a term or makes I, it useful as a term. I think if you weaken the claim to say you're seeing a refutalization or a feudalization of capitalism. That is a weaker claim than saying we're seeing a transition from capitalism to feudalism. But yeah. I can I can see I can see Phil being really skeptical about these ideas. So I want to hear his ideas about it. <laughs> what Phil's skeptical? Shock, shocking. Not Phil's normally very enthusiastic about about everything. Go on, Phil. Can I talk <laughs> through the little space here? Yeah. Do Go I have on. your permission to talk now? Yes. Um, I yeah, I wasn't asking for it really. Um, but you have it anyway, so go for it. Oh, thank you. I'm less skeptical, I suppose. I mean, I'm skeptical. Obviously, I agree about the market dependence thing. But I'm, I suppose, the reason I'm also skeptical is because it seems to me it's impossible to, um, it's impossible to be feudalism when you have a society that is based around uh, legally equal individuals as well. Um, mm. just, exactly. That's exactly um, right. They're like we're not going to return to costs, yeah, and exactly. this is where the question of Brazilianization is interesting because Brazil, obviously, like remnants of a class system get reproduced under bourgeois equality, as we see with the race. But that is not the same as feudalism. That's no, absolutely. 
And so, I mean, it's attempt, you know, it's tempting to use feudalism to describe um, inequalities that are as yawning as they are in some parts of the West and um, kind of, you know, uh, on the trajectory towards Latin American levels of inequality. But it's not um, it's not feudalism. And like you suggest, Anton, I mean, it indicates a certain lack of imagination or a kind of, I don't know, even a Eurocentrism. Uh, maybe if they're unwilling to kind of see that there are other modern societies that can endure this, these kind of levels of disparity and oppression, but that don't mean a kind of, it doesn't mean going back in European history, but that in fact, um, yeah. you know, it's just another, it's another kind of modern paradigm. But, and there's a kind of almost, um, I, I wouldn't call it superciliousness, but the idea that it's regression rather than progression. Well, if you go to Brazil and you say, capitalism was never supposed to be this. And then the Brazilians say, well, well, yes, it was. We, it always was like this for yeah. us, and you're you're now just progressing into a more progressive degeneracy than than what you ever expected it to be. But yeah. this is something for I Alex. Think, sorry, I think to, to to flip it to flip it around, and particularly in the Californian example. So some of the more supposedly um, progressive aspects of what you might call a particularly Californian um, version of capitalism have their their parallels, not being exactly the same as, but have their parallels in an older form of society and particularly that kind of Lord Surf clerisy relation. I think that is a useful way to kind of to, to undercut critiques. Um, one of the more sort of progressive um representations or expressions of contemporary american capitalism so i think it's i think it does have some use there yeah i mean i i i agree in terms of it being you know as george just said kind of shading in certain aspects or giving color but it doesn't really touch the fundamentals of the capitalist economy today and the point about eurocentrism i think is right because in in you know if you look at it from a wider lens and especially now that europe has left the very much left the 20th century, um, you can look back and go, well, that was an exceptional period. You know, the, the kind of post-war period in Europe or, or maybe even the whole of the 20th century um, of modernization was something which was very specific and in the rest of the world, which was either, well, under really existing socialism, but especially now today when the whole world is capitalist, a lot of these trends about deep inequality, rentierism, um, the, the losing of, of, of rights, the la, la, losing of citizenship, you know, not, not actual losing formal citizenship, but a lot of social rights, which are taken for granted in Europe, um, maybe were never, never existed in, in many other parts of the world. And in that regard, it's just capitalism returning to not pre to, to some pre-capitalist feudalist past, but to, to what capitalism maybe always was kind of redder in tooth and claw than, um, than it was in Europe. And, and so I, I've got this piece coming out hopefully in, in next month about Brazil, the Brazilianization of the world, which discusses this, uh, kind of discusses these trajectories through the lens of Brazil. And, and the argument is basically that, you know, Brazil is not for all its seeming backwardness in many areas. It was always modern. It was born modern because it was a, a colony and, existed for the pure extraction of value. It wasn't a, a, a kind of civilization in the way that, you know, Mexico had a, a, a sort of pre, uh, pre-Columbian civilization or Peru did. Brazil was, uh, it was inhabited by, by, indig- by, by lots of indigenous people, but it didn't have a kind of sophisticated civilization in the way that those other places did. And so in that regard, it was, it was always modern. Um, and it, in fact, it was, it's precisely its modernity, which meant it was so somehow uncivilized or unsocialized because there was never the impulse to really create a, a genuine civilization or d- d- genuine kind of social 
nexus in which people had kind of rights and responsibilities because it was just pure plunder. And then kind of plunder was the, the predominant kind of mode of, of Brazilian socialization. Um, and so I kind of go through a lot of the other features that kind of spin off from this and are, and are a factor of this, but it seems that the use of the state to plunder, to extract value um, in a way which doesn't set um, set capital to work through production, which then produces more capital, but really is just um, either money producing more money through kind of finance or through um, the the plunder of what people had through you know primitive accumulation um, has been the mode of, of capitalism in Brazil for a long time, and and so in that regard, there's nothing maybe new about the developed West coming to exemplify certain of these certain of these factors. It's it's very capitalist, really. I think the way to read this, certainly with the whole prediction of the Brazilianization of the U.S., for example, which is a kind of interesting historical irony insofar as the homeland of, of capitalism is now starting to resemble what looks something like pre-capitalist, but which is nonsensical for the U.S. because the U.S. never knew pre-capitalism in, in that sense. Um, but in the early 60s, I think Korzhev said there are basically two trajectories for post-history. The first is the Japanese one, which is sort of lifeless, almost senseless sophistication, which um, is quite stable and is quite soft, but which is um, a, a form of, yeah, a, a form of completely pointless sophistication, um, ritualistic, but in a sense, almost hollow. And then he said, then there is the American way, which is almost kitschy and sort of openly commercial, et cetera, et cetera. And has nothing with these systems and cultures of deference that you get in the Japanese case. But looking at the early 21st century and certainly reading your piece, Alex, it seems like there are now basically two trajectories for post-history which seem more probable because the U.S. itself is Brazilianizing, and it's either Brazil, which you could characterize as a form of hysterical neoliberalism, which is still quite vital, which is quite martial and quite violent. And then you have the Japanese QE version, where the state just seamlessly manages society, but it's also mired in a sort of endless form of stagnation at the same time. And those are not, I mean, they're interesting termini to see for post-history, but politically, they're not particularly hopeful in any way. No, indeed. Um, maybe we'll leave that there, because, and we'll just leave that for uh, people to to mull over, um, and maybe maybe come back to this uh, to this idea of Brazilianization or Japanization as our alternate sad <laughs> sad futures. Do you <laughs> do you want otaku or do you want uh, carnival and uh, violence? Um, I mean, it's quite obvious which one you should take, but uh, we'll leave that there. Thank you very much, Anton, uh, for joining us. Uh, that's it from all of us. Catch you later. Bye bye. Thank you. I am the pop of dope. I come from California, dirty salt from Belgium. Wah, wah, wah. Je suis le diable. Je suis le diable.